The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Tonight and each Sunday night in the month of uh, July, we're going to offer to you uh, mission stories, as you heard in the uh, uh, video announcements at the start. Tonight, you get to meet Matt and Alou Brandon. Matt and Alou, are you guys in here this hour somewhere? There, where are you? Standing up back over here. Would you welcome Matt and Alou? They've been with us most of this year. And uh, tonight, they'll be in room 303, right behind these doors. Uh, they're currently ministering in Malaysia. They're doing church plant in that area. They'd like to hear you to hear what God is doing there, give you an invitation to join them, and a great opportunity. So 303, 630 tonight, and each Sunday night in July, you'll be hearing different mission stories. So uh, we invite you to join us for that particular occasion. There's a bunch of other stuff in the bulletin. My encouragement to you is find a place to serve and a place to grow. And as you do that, uh, you'll be honoring the Savior, hopefully growing in him. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to two places, two places. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 is where we're going to start. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Then quickly, we're going to move to the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're going to begin the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3. So Ephesians 4 and then Mark chapter 3, we'll be looking at those passages together. Let's pray. Fathers, we celebrate the... uh, freedom that we enjoy as a nation, we recognize the greatest freedom we have is in Jesus. And as we come to the word again to see who you are, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would teach us. I pray you give us clear understanding. I pray that you would be honored through this, Lord Jesus. So as we look at a topic um, that talks about who you are, help us to emulate that. In Jesus' name, amen. Anger in our world seems to be spewing out with greater and greater frequency and greater and greater intensity. Would you agree with that? I mean, it seems like there's anger everywhere. I just Google up anger and politicians and this popped up and uh, some of the nations uh, have this gone on. I popped up uh, sports and anger. If you saw the Texas Rangers game when uh, Rufus Ardor popped this guy Batiste in the jaw, probably the strongest punch I've seen in sports history. And uh, he's suspended for seven games because of it. Anger spills out in road rage. And I told Matt, that picture looks a little bit like him over there. Uh, Matt Brandon, our missionary, he assured me it was not him. But you've either been victim of road rage, and I'm sure in this godly audience, nobody has expressed road rage. Amen? Amen. So anger is everywhere. It just seems to be spewing with greater intensity and uh, with greater frequency. Uh, right now from Istanbul to Orlando, this weekend from Baghdad to Bangladesh, uh, in the past from Fort Hood to Sandy Hook where one of our dear friends uh, lost a six-year-old granddaughter in the murders that took place there. Anger seems to be spewing out with greater intensity and frequency in our world. And the Apostle Paul addresses that somewhat. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. So if you look at that particular verse, it says that you can be angry and yet not sin. So there's anger that is not sinful. Uh, It goes on and says, uh, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Uh, Bev and I have an agreement in our marriage that we won't do that. And as we say, sometimes the sun goes down real late at our house as a result of that. It was uh, uh, Irma Bombeck who said, uh, comment on this verse, don't go to bed angry. She said, uh, don't go to bed angry, stay up and fight. That's what she said. 
But the scriptures are very clear. There is anger that is not sinful. Three times in the Gospels, Jesus' anger is mentioned. Three times in the Gospel, the anger of Jesus is mentioned. Now, when we think about being like Jesus, probably being angry is not one of the things high on our list. When you think about being like Jesus, so far we looked at Jesus being caring, Jesus being compassionate, Jesus being loving, Jesus being forgiving, Jesus a friend of sinners last week. And those are the primary things that we look at. But if we're going to be like Jesus in every aspect, then there must be something correlated to anger that Jesus had that we can have and yet not sin. So what is that? I, I, I recognize that this is probably a topic we haven't talked about often. In fact, I don't think I've preached a message on that. In fact, I know I haven't. 35 years preached a message on the anger of Jesus. And as I started this, I had several emails from you saying, Gary, would you touch on that one Sunday? And as I began to study the different topics we had and met with uh, Dave and Chase and we talked about it, we decided this is one we need to address. And so this morning, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to begin in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is an interesting scenario, beginning in verse 1, so look at that with me. And Jesus again entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, in order that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, rise and come forward. And Jesus said to them, plural, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with what? What did it say in your Bible? This is verse five. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus has had multiple confrontations with the Jewish leaders. His confrontations have not been over biblical mandates. His confrontations have been over man-made rules. And so whenever Jesus violated these man-made rules, the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians would get upset with him. And, and Jesus, in this particular instance, it says his response is a response of anger and a response of mourning. So a response of anger and a response of mourning. So when we look at this, we have to recognize that indeed Jesus was angry. The word for anger there is a very clear word. It's a most common Greek word used for that. And that's exactly what Jesus had. Jesus is mad because these people are more concerned about keeping their man-made rules than in caring and loving and helping someone. That's why Jesus is mad. I mean, they've got a man with a withered hand. This is a setup. If you look at verse 2, it's very clear this is a setup. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath in order they might accuse him. So this is a setup. They're setting Jesus up. <clears throat> they desire for him to do something so they might accuse him. And so they bring this guy into, this, into the synagogue. And when they do so, Jesus sees the need. Jesus sees the need. Now, the Pharisees had actually taught it was okay to give medical aid and assistance on the Sabbath, but only if a person's life was in danger uh, for the sake of midwifery. I mean, you can't stop a baby from coming, so you have to have midwives come, and for the, for, for the purpose of circumcision. So there were three things, according to the Pharisees, that you could do related to health concerns on the Sabbath. <clears throat> so one was circumcision, one was the birth of a baby midwifery, and then the other was to save a person's life. But here's a man who would be an outcast in the temple. Here's a man with a withered hand, which means somehow he was cursed by God or punished by God, and therefore he was not one who would be on the inside, he would be on the outside. 
Here's a man in great need, and he comes to Jesus, and there's the potential for him to be helped by Jesus, but here's the problem. It's the Sabbath. And the Pharisees have all these rules and regulations regarding the Sabbath, and this is where the confrontation with Jesus often takes place. And what takes place here, Jesus looks at these men, and before he does the healing, it says he's angry with them. He's angry and he's grieved. So there's an anger that Jesus has, but it also creates grief in his heart. Basically, Jesus is saying your legalistic laws have replaced your love and care for people. That's what he's saying. By his actions and with his words, your legalism and your law has replaced your love, your care, and your concern for people. It can happen to us. We can become legalists at heart. We become judgmental of other people. I mean, this is a guy with a withered hand. The result is he must be an outcast. He must be one who's cursed of God, forsaken of God. He must not have enough faith, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's easy for us to begin to judge people just as they were judging people as well. One author very honestly says, I recognize as the Holy Spirit touched my heart on a particular day, how critical and judgmental I had become when I went to worship. Before the service started, I sat in the auditorium. I watched people as I entered. I thought to myself, how did she get him as a young couple came by? A teenager passed by. I whispered to my husband, can, can you believe her parents let her wear that in public? I saw another guy walk down the aisle with more tattoos than he looked like a walking billboard. And then I saw someone in shorts on a Sunday morning. How dare they, I thought to myself. On the way home, I criticized the pastor's message. I criticized the music. I criticized the length of the service. I know none of you ever do those things. And I realized, as I was saying those things to my husband, the Spirit of God spoke to my heart. If you become a critic of worship or a participator of worship. Interesting difference, isn't it? And so she judges. That's what's happening to the Pharisees. They look around, they judge people. He must be, she must be. Well, Jesus sees a need and he meets that need. He blows past the religious norms of the day and the traditions of men at that day. And he brings the man up and he heals him. But make no mistake about it, Jesus was mad. Jesus was upset. Jesus was angry. And instead of celebrating this, we see the response. We've got the response of Jesus to the Pharisees. But uh, Tim Keller says this, the heart of the Pharisees were more withered than the hand of the man. I love that statement. Their hearts were dried up and shriveled. They were more concerned about themselves and their laws and their rules than they were about a person who had a need. Here's my encouragement to us at TBC. Um, When you see a need... Meet the need. When you see a stranger, be friendly to the stranger. You see someone visiting, reach out to the visitor. See somebody with a struggle, go and seek after that person. It's easy to do. Well, they see the need and they say, hey, it's the wrong day. And so Jesus does the right thing, but he does it on the wrong day. So what is the response of the Pharisees to Jesus? It's quite interesting. If you look at what takes place, he says, stretch out your hand. That's the end of verse 5. It was restored. Then in verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediately and began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And so Jesus does the right thing on the wrong day. He takes an outsider. He brings him on the inside by healing him. He does the, what's past the religious norm, and that was not to heal on the Sabbath. And, and so rather than celebrating and high-fiving, we forget, they forget all about the man. They go outside, and these are strange bedfellows, by the way. 
way, the Pharisees and Herodians. The Pharisees were the keepers of the law. The Herodians were those who wanted to follow Herod as king. And so the, the Pharisees can't stand Jesus because he's coming as Messiah. The Herodians can't stand Jesus because people are proclaiming him as king. And so these are really strange bedfellows, if you will. This is like Rush Limbaugh and Nancy Pelosi becoming best friends and allies. And so, I mean, they do that because they have a common enemy, and that enemy is Jesus. Make no mistake about it, Jesus is angry here, and the reason he's angry is because a vulnerable person is being cast aside for the legalism of the day, just being cast aside. Well, there's a second time when Jesus' anger is spoken about in the Scriptures. It's a few pages over in the Gospel of Mark. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. These are three specific areas where Jesus' anger is mentioned or where it is on display. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. The response of the disciples to the parents. Well, it doesn't specifically say parents. I had to have something to put in the outline, so I put parents. It specifically says in verse 13, this is Mark chapter 10, and they were bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them. So we're not sure who the they were. They were bringing children to Jesus. I assume mostly it was parents. It could have been older siblings. It could have been grandparents. It could have been godly friends. But somebody is bringing these kids to Jesus. My assumption is, and most scholars, not that I include myself in that category, but most scholars say that, uh, that, that they probably represented parents. So they brought them to Jesus for a specific purpose. They brought that he might touch them. They know the might and the power of Jesus, and they're bringing their kids to Jesus, their children to Jesus, because they want them to be touched by Jesus. And so when they do that, there's a problem. The disciples rebuke them. The disciples, hey, don't bring those kids up here. He's got adults to take care of. Don't bring those kids up here. He's busy. Don't bring those kids up here. So for whatever reason, we're not sure what they said, but the reality of it is the disciples are hindering the kids and their parents or whoever's bringing them, the they there, from coming to Jesus. So the response of the disciples to the parents, look at what it says. The disciples rebuke them. So what is the response of Jesus to the disciples when he sees this happening? Well, you're familiar with the story. Look at verse 14. When Jesus saw this, he was, verse 14, look at your Bibles. When Jesus saw this, he was what? What's it say in your Bible? Indignant. When's the last time you used the word indignant in your vocabulary? I mean, I don't know about you. I don't use that word. It's not a word I use frequently. It's kind of a polite word to talk about somebody being mad, angry, or ticked off. They were indignant because they had a cool reception. They were indignant because everybody responded in this way. They were indignant. And so personally, I don't use that word often. Maybe you do. So I had to look it up and chase it down. It's interesting. New Testament's written in Greek. The actual Greek word for indignant means to arouse to anger. Jesus is mad. He's mad. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant with the disciples. He's mad at the disciples. There's anger from Jesus' disciples. Why was Jesus aroused to anger? He was aroused to anger because people were being kept from him. Specifically because children were being kept from him. The vulnerable kids, a vulnerable man, kept from Jesus and so he's angry. And you know what it says after that. He looks at the disciples and he tells them, permit the children to come to me. Don't hinder them. Such as the kingdom of of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter at all. It's a childlike faith. 
<clears throat> it's a faith in who he is. It's a faith that, that, that is a faith that's believing like a child. Don't you love to see a kid express childlike faith? I mean, one of the great joys I have is to watch kids who, who talk about what God has done in their life and what Jesus has done for them. And they respond in faith, childlike faith. That's what we're talking about. Maybe you remember the story. I used it a couple of times in the past. It's a story that's told out of Romania. Uh, there was a young girl who wanted a kitten. And so her dad said, she was a four-year-old girl, and her dad said, if you really want a kitten, you need to go in the backyard, get on your knees and pray and ask Jesus to give you a kitten. So she had childlike faith. The dad said, I looked through the window, I saw my little girl on the ground, and I heard her say, Jesus, please give me a kitten of my very own to love and care for, amen. He's telling this story to his pastor who lived in the house behind him. On that particular day, the pastor had a kitten that had gotten stuck in a tree. And so to get the kitten down, he tied a rope from the tree, from a branch on the tree, to the bumper of his car. And he began to back his car up, and he went a little too quickly, and it snapped the rope. And when it did, the limb went flying, or the branch went flying up. The kitten went flying into the air. You get the picture, don't you? And this guy's telling his pastor, so he said, Pastor, I heard my little girl pray, uh, Jesus, please give me a kitty to love and care for my own. And then a kitten, paws outstretched, fell right out of heaven in front of my daughter in front for her to have. Childlike faith. You know, childlike faith does not mean simple faith. It does not mean a non-intelligent faith. It means a believing faith. And Jesus is upset because these kids have been hindered from coming to him. The two times the word anger is used in association with Jesus, it has to do with him being upset because the vulnerable were not allowed to come to him. So two times the word is used. So we can be angry and follow it with me for a second. You can be angry and not sin. Jesus was the son of God. He never sinned and he was angry. The theologians coined a term, righteous indignation. Righteous meaning it's right, indignation meaning it was anger. Jesus displays that on two occasions where the word anger is mentioned. Indig in indignant is mentioned as well. So here's what I would say. If we want to be like Jesus, there are times we should be angry. Now what we do with our anger can become sinful. But there are times we should be angry. When we hear of children being abused, it should raise up within us a righteous indignation. When we see abortions taking place over and over and over and over and over and over again and Supreme Court decision made like last week, it should raise up within us a righteous indignation. When we read about families being destroyed, when we read about mass murderers and terrorists, it should raise up within us a righteous indignation. Now, what we do with that can become sinful. But if we're going to be like Jesus as a part of us, when we see that which is right and that which is vulnerable being cast aside and left aside, it should cause us, should cause us to be angry and not sin. There's a third time when Jesus becomes angry. The word is not used in this particular context. If you jump ahead to Matthew chapter 11... It's a familiar scenario. We'll just play a video so you can see it, and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, let's see. 
not written my house my house shall be called the house of prayer but you you have made it a den of thieves very familiar scenario isn't it we call that the what what do we call that scenario cleansing of the temple Jesus was angry he was angry for two reasons when it came to the cleansing of the temple. Number one, because Judaism had made the worship of God exclusive unto themselves. That they'd begin to hoard God rather than share God. In fact, when Mark does this, look at Mark 17. It says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. If you write in your Bible, underline that, for all the nations. You see, Jesus was upset, and here's why he was upset. Where the money changes were and where the sacrifices were being bought and sold and all this commerce was taking place was the court of the Gentiles, and so the Gentiles didn't have a place to come anymore. They were being squeezed out. And rather than the temple being a place for all nations, Gentiles were excluded rather than included. And so Jesus is upset, but primarily he's upset in that scenario because the temple had become a place of commerce rather than a place of worship. You see, the way it took place, you would go with your money and you tried for their money and they make a little interest on their money and you, you would now go to buy their sacrifices, which is a little more expensive than raising your own sacrifices. And therefore, the temple became a place of profiteering. You could buy your salvation, so to speak. And Jesus is upset. My father's house should be a house of prayer, but you've made it a place where these robbers are. It's a den of thieves and Jesus is angry. He's angry because their rates have been jacked up and people can't worship and because they're outside of the temple now instead of inside the temple. And Jesus says, I've come for all nations and now you're excluding people left and right. And so Jesus is angry. Well, some of you are thinking, man, Gary, it's a lot different than the last sermons. I mean, where are you, what, what are we going to do with this? Well, first of all, you don't hear many messages that display and talk, or to talk about the message of Jesus being angry. So the question we have to ask is, why was he angry? In all three settings, he was angry because people were being excluded from him, being hindered from him. I ask the question, when do we hinder people? How do we hinder people? Do we hinder people? And if we do, hindering children, hindering our own children by, by living a hypocritical lifestyle, by not teaching the truth, by not modeling truth. So I look at this and recognize it's easy for us to become guilty. In fact, the, the response of those in the temple to Jesus, you know what they wanted to do? Look at verse 18. Chief priests and scribes heard this. They began seeking, same word, how to destroy him. How to destroy him. Well, here, I want to apply this and we'll, then we'll conclude. 
Jesus was upset because vulnerable children and handicapped and Gentiles are being left out. So if you want to be like Jesus, when you see the vulnerable being rejected, being chastised, being set aside for religion, it's a problem. Now, when we talk about anger, I want to establish two things. First of all, I don't want to get the cart before the horse. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking to people who know Christ as Savior. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, the beginning point here, the starting line, is trusting him as Savior. That passage about being angry and not sin does not apply to you. It begins with a person. It says, you, put on, you lay aside the old, you put on the new. And so we're talking about a transformed heart that produces changed behavior. We're talking about a gospel-centered life, a spirit-controlled life. Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 4. Don't misunderstand me. This is not six points of behavior modification, 101 ways of anger management. That is not right. That will never work. The only way for us to be angry and not sin is when Jesus and the gospel is what we live out of our lives. So I'll make three points and I'll conclude. Point number one, it's possible to be angry and not sin. Anger is not sin, but it can lead to sin. It's possible to be angry and not sin. Anger is not sin, but anger can lead to sin. Jesus was angry, never sinned. His anger was directed towards religious frauds, those who kept others from the Father. We can be angry and not sin. I I asked Bev a few weeks ago, I said, babe, when do I get the most upset? When do I get angry? For me, when I'm disrespected. Just a confession. When I'm disrespected, I become angry. And so I wrestle with that. I I wrestle with that. As a man, when I'm disrespected in some way, uh, I, 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 by God's grace, I don't have much of a temper. I, I, I get, if I get upset, I get quiet. I don't lash out. I don't scream out. My kids are with us this weekend. I, I mean, I, I just don't do that. But getting quiet is just as bad as screaming out, perhaps, if it's an issue of the heart. And so for me, if I'm disrespected, I get upset. It's a confession. When do you get angry? Passed over for the promotion? Everybody goes on vacation. You're stuck in 100-degree heat for the rest of the summer. Road rage. You look at what our country's become, and you get angry in the wrong way. Uh, Frankly, I'm embarrassed with what some people write on Facebook. Spewing. Be careful. You represent Jesus wherever you are. So anger is not sinful, but it can lead to sinful acts. Now, we all have sinful thoughts. When I have sinful thoughts, angry thoughts, I think sometimes I wish I could pray the imprecatory psalms. You know what the imprecatory psalms are? Here's an example. Imprecatory psalms are when when, when David prayed for God to take care of his enemies for him. And in Psalm 58, David says, break the teeth in their mouths, O God. You ever want to pray that prayer? You know, God, I'm not going to do it. I'm not that kind of man. But God, would you do something to that guy that just cut me off in line? God, I'm in line in the 15-item line. That person's got 600 items to buy. I'm the only one that gets a little upset with that, right? Yeah. And, And so we look at that and realize we can be angry and not sin. But here's the problem. Oftentimes, our anger leads to sinfulness. If we're honest with one another, oftentimes our anger leads to sinfulness. We get angry because you fill in the blank. 
What makes me, the, the, the scriptures talk about anger over and over and over again. So, Proverbs 29, 11, fools give vent to full rage, the wise bring calm in the end. An angry person stirs up conflict, a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. A gentle answer turns away wrath, a harsh word stirs up anger. That is one of my life verses, Proverbs 15, 1. In, in the New American Standard, it says a gentle answer turns away wrath. You answer gently. Proverbs 19.11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense, overlook an offense. The response of those in the temple to Jesus, they want to kill him. They want to kill him. So point number one, we can be angry and not sin. Point number two, oftentimes our anger does lead to sinfulness. Point number three, the solution. We fall on our face as believers in Jesus. This is for those who already know Christ. We fall on our face. We confess our sinfulness. We pray that we will be filled with the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. And rather than become angry people all the time walking around like this, we become God-fearing people who model Jesus. If anger is your default mode, if people walk on eggshells around you, if people don't want to work for you anymore because every time they do it, you complain about it. If you're a parent who's always yelling at your kids, the issue with anger is an issue of the heart when we respond in ungodly ways. So our prayer should be, God, would you deal with my heart? Anger in the Spirit gospels three times with Jesus when the vulnerable are hindered from coming to him. And so my conclusion is this, not that Jesus is angry, but Jesus is righteous. In his anger, he is right. He's right because he wants all people to be with him. If you were with us last week, you heard testimony of Pat and Amanda Pratt. If you haven't seen it, go to the video, uh, go to the website, you can watch it on video. We're concluding each service by hearing testimony of different TBCers, what God has done in their lives. And I've asked my friend Will White to come and share his story. So, Will, would you come and join me up here? Would you guys welcome Will White this morning? Bill, you got me? There we go. Will's a dear friend who uh, I mentor young men. He's one of those young men that uh, I've mentored for uh, some time now, and it's really a delight to have him here. He's got an unusual story. I've asked him to share it. After he does that, uh, Bev and I are going to be in the back. We'll pray with you over anything as we sing one final song. So worship team, join us as well. Will? Thank you, Gary. Um, I have to start off by saying that I'm, I'm an optometrist, and so this is a very different setting for me. Um, I'm, I'm not used to people that I'm speaking to actually being able to see me very well. Um, Usually we're in a dark room and, and you don't have your glasses on maybe and we put those funny dilating drops in your eyes and so uh, bright lights and everything. So this is, uh, the lights on me right now, it's, it's definitely different. And so if I stumble a little bit, I, I apologize. But um, I, I'm here to tell my story about how God has, has taken me from a very different place um, where I was, uh, I, w- I was called maybe a freak or, or strange or, or abnormal. You see, I was, I was born in Austin, and, and that's not the... <laughs> I know what you Aggies are thinking out there, but that's, that's not the, 
the, the different part is that I, I was born in a house on South Congress Avenue. My parents were recently married and soon to be divorced. And my father, he was an artist. And my mother, she was a street performer. And they made their livelihood with the Renaissance Festival. Now, if, if you've never been to the Renaissance Festival, it's, it's really a pretty amazing place. And there's some very skilled craftsmen there and, and wonderful performers that have even gone all the way to Broadway. And they do an amazing job of, of recreating the 1500s for people. And it, it's quite an enjoyment. Um, in that life, though, we, we traveled around a lot. Uh, that, that's what I knew from the day I was born until until high school, and uh, we would travel from, from fair to fair and, and, and state to state, and that created somewhat of an unstable environment for me as a kid. It, it, you could say it was chaotic at times, and some weekends I might be living in a tent or uh, spending weeks in a, in a trailer, or we, uh, we would travel sometimes in a school bus, or uh, we would stay in spare bedrooms of, of, of different people there, and some of my early life I even spent in a, in a Russian Orthodox monastery. You see, the people in the Renaissance culture, they're, they're very loving, very giving, very intelligent people. But a lot of them had experienced religion, uh, specifically Christianity, and, and they felt condemnation. They'd been rejected for the way that they look or the way they dress or, or some of the, the views that they have. And I had seen this hypocrisy firsthand and. I'd felt that rejection, and I wanted absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. There were, there were a lot of other influences there for me to, to follow after. And there was, uh, you know, agnostic or atheist or mystic or humanism or paganism or Wicca. All these things were widely accepted, and they were pushing in on me as a young child and, and a young adult. And so I became very confused about God, and I rejected God, and I wanted nothing to do with that. And really, it wasn't until college that I actually learned about Christ, and I had what I would call my road to Damascus moment. You see, I really had no intention of going to college. Um, We had had some stability, and I was going to a local high school, and the only reason I passed my classes was so I could play sports. I had found drugs and alcohol and women and that was fine for me, but um, it was the end of my senior year, and, and a lot of my friends were starting to go off to, to, to different schools or getting ready to go off, and I saw this as an opportunity to continue my sinful lifestyle in college, and so for some reason, I started getting phone calls from uh, a school that I'd never heard of and a, and a place that I'd never been, and I still to this day don't know how they got my phone number, but I ended up enrolling in the fall of 2001 at the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. And that's, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a bit, a, a bit different. It, did, it didn't take me long to realize I'd made a pretty big mistake in what I was thinking of, of where I was going. You see, I had had these sinful desires, and, and God had used that to take me out of my environment and put me where he wanted me. I didn't know a single person there. I didn't have a single friend. I didn't know anybody that had ever even gone to that school. And I moved in with a hangover and some of my stuff packed into a liquor box. And uh, I I spent time by myself because I didn't have a roommate. And I started to realize that this was a a pretty big mistake on my part. And these people were going to judge me and they were going to find out that that I didn't know God and and, uh, that, that I would be rejected again. And so 
I figured I had to fool them somehow. And around seven or eight years old, I'd been given a, a kind of a children's Bible. It, it had some pictures, but there were still a lot of words in it. And um, I, started, I started to read through that some because I figured I had, to, I had to learn some of these stories so that I could fool people. And I started to actually learn about Christ. And I started to see what Christians really were, not the religious side of it, but, but the loving side. And it was that first week at Welcome Week there at Mary Hardin Baylor that I got to know God. And, and I saw the living Christ and I committed my life to the Lord right then and, and accepted salvation. God kept working in our lives while we were there. And it was about a year later I was introduced to my wife, who's, who's here with me today. And um, you can see our, our picture up here. And a, a lanky guy like me marrying a beautiful woman like that, and if that's not divine intervention, then, then you need to come see me and I'll check your eyes for you, okay? I mean... Yeah. God kept working in our lives while we were there, and I, I graduated. We graduated together, and I still struggled. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I, I was self-seeking and, and prideful, and finally, Kirby and I, we, we prayed, and we, I wanted a profession where I could help people, and, and I wanted to, to further God's kingdom, and, and I prayed that he show that to me. And almost overnight, he introduced me to the profession of optometry. So I applied to school, and, but it was late in the year. They only take about 100 uh, applicants, and, and uh, I didn't have all my scores, and there was just the, the deck was stacked against me. And so I was told it was probably going to be a few years of trying before I ever got in. Weeks went by, and months went by, and I, I, just, I knew that it wasn't going to happen. And one day we received a letter, and I kind of knew what it was going to say, but for some reason it said I was accepted. And, and I, we, we both kind of looked at each other, and we knew that it was wrong. Somebody had made a mistake. And so I actually... I emailed the dean of admissions to the University of Houston College of Optometry, and I said, hey, I got this letter here, you know, and, and he assured me that it was right and that I was accepted into school. And so we packed up our things, and we moved to Houston, and God kept working in our lives. And fast forward about four years, and we're back in Temple, and Kirby's pregnant with our first daughter, Alexis, and I'm sitting down for an interview with my dream job at Scott and White Hospital, with Glenn Brinley and, and Brian Neriam, and these are two of the most godly guys that I've ever met. And you see, about a year before that, an old college buddy of mine had kind of randomly invited me to go to a men's conference at Camp Tejas. I was involved in a church there in Houston, but I decided to go ahead and go, even though I didn't really know anybody in the church at that time. And I was minding my own business, getting ready, standing in line for, for dinner one night, when this bald guy with an LSU t-shirt who was standing next to me asked me, what's your story? Where are you at? What are you doing right now? And I told him that I was studying to be an eye doctor. And he said, I've got somebody you need to meet right now. So I met with Brian and, and Brian looked at me and he said, we've been praying that God send us somebody to take a position that's going to be coming open in, in about a year, right around the exact same time as you're going to be graduating. I'm going to be praying for you and, and that that God leads you to that position. I've been at Scott and White for five years now, and I'm very grateful for all that they've taught me and mostly how to care for people in a Christ-like manner. And, and this is, it's my life, but it's really God's story and how he's worked through it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Will.
You know, God works in our lives in different ways. You sign up for a school you never heard of and you're surrounded by believers who love on you and you meet Jesus. Jesus loved these folks. That's why he was angry. He loved them. He loved the guy with the withered hand. He loved the kids. He loved the Gentiles as well as the other folks, but they were kept from him, so he was angry. My prayer is we'll love those around us and we'll introduce them to Jesus and bring them to Jesus and show that they don't have to be rejected and stay on the outside, but they can know him and be on the inside.